Welcome, everyone, to the Directed IRA live webinar and special podcast episode. So excited for today because I've got an amazing guest. Chris Loeffler is with me today. Chris is the CEO of Caliber. We're going to talk about their story today because they're like this private company. You could just say a small business yep. that has turned into a pretty big business now. They're publicly traded. But Caliber is also an alternative asset manager, if we will say, use that throw on that word, alternative and they actually manage commercial real estate assets, um, but they also have stock themselves. So we're going to be transitioning between those two different areas. Just want to make sure you understand when we're talking about what Caliber is doing is, and I'll let Chris explain this, but they're out there managing alternative assets, e.g. commercial real estate, but they also are a company themselves that is publicly traded. Yeah. So uh, Chris, why don't you tell us about Caliber a little bit, the story of how you guys started um, and then what you're doing right now. And then I want to go, I mean, I got a lot of questions. Like, what was your first deal compared to deals you're doing now? But we're going to get into all this. Questions are fun. Uh, and I, I'm most honored to state that today I get to sit in Matt's chair. Uh, That's for right. The podcast. That's my normal so. spot over there. I'm sitting in Mark's chair, which is it's a little it's crappy. Not, not it's quite not, as comfortable, right? It's not you as know? good. I, yeah. <laughs> I like this chair. This is, I, I could stay here for a while. Yeah, it's a good know? spot. You might lose your spot. Um, so well, you signed up for an hour, so you're gonna be here. All right, so it's good. Um, it's good to see you guys, and for those of you I've met before at different conferences, it's great to to reconnect. Um, so, just a very simple way to state what we do: uh, we invest in, manage, and develop real estate. And I think that um, I would add to that: we do it in any market condition. So, our goal is to help investors make money in real estate, no matter what is happening in the market. Yeah. And in particular. That's kind of important right now because we're going into what we believe is to be a relatively distressed real estate market, which is an incredible investment opportunity, but also can be scary if you own real estate and don't know how to manage your way through that. And so Caliber yeah. is is a problem solver in that space. Um, we also happen to be a public company. Um, so investors can invest with us into our operating business actually through the, the public company, and they can also invest with us into our real estate funds and in, into the underlying deals that we do in the real estate space. So now that you're like a public company CEO, you like, you can't say certain stuff, right? Or when you have to like throw up all these disclaimers, you know, I think Elon blew that whole thing up because he <laughs> yeah. says whatever he wants, whenever he wants. No, yeah. there, there are, there... we are going to smoke weed here too on the podcast. <laughs> all right. I'll be, I'll be Joe Rogan. <laughs> there you go. That'll be fun. No, I think um, the most important thing is to, to separate in my you know, discussion, what's happening at Caliber, the public company, which yeah. is everything I'm going to tell you is about what's already happened in our business. And we've already talked about to the public and then also what's happening in our products, which also happen to be investment funds. So yeah. most public companies sell, you know, cars or lawnmowers or whatever. So when yeah. they talk about their products, they can pretty much say anything they want. We can say the same thing as it relates to our real estate investments and our funds. Yeah. It's just, you have to separate in your mind when I'm talking. If I'm talking about an investment, I'm probably talking about our funds or our products. Yeah. All right. Now let's talk about the very first fund you did. If we can go back in time, how long ago was that? And what was the first deal you did? First well, you raised money. <laughs> <laughs> so the first deal we did, uh, I was, um, I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was, okay. I was stuck in uh, corporate housing for four months on the worst job in the history of my career at PwC. Okay. It was also the best job because that's where I met my wife because she was at PwC Austin. I was in PwC Phoenix and we both got shipped out to that job. Okay. And then, um, you know, working 7 a.m. till 11 at night trying to do this carve out audit. It's horrific. And uh, my roommate says, hey, uh, this guy just taught me how to buy 
properties at auction and we're going to buy our first property. And, you know, we did while I was sitting in my corporate housing and yeah. we flipped our first home and we made 50,000 bucks and six is days better than doing audits. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I didn't know you could do this. Uh, and, and, and ultimately that's what, what got us started. Um, our first year in business that was in November or December of 2008. Okay. Our first year in business was 2009. We flipped 150 homes with about 35 investors that we met randomly at coffee shops. Yeah. And I not, not like we knew them and we met at a coffee shop. Like we went to the Starbucks across the street from our little office and yeah. looked at people's watches and said, Hey, do you want to flip homes? <laughs> and they would come across the street and meet with us and we'd give them the deal and then give us a hundred thousand bucks. And we'd go to the auction. Like size up the watch based on like, could they like throw money in on a deal or not? That was kind of it. That I was mean, the it deal? was, it was this before the Apple watch. And you know what, for all the entrepreneurs out there who, 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 who've lived this, I want to share with you, you know, it was that, that absolute need to succeed that made us successful. And so yeah. we would go and buy a property and put $10,000 down and we had to pay for the rest the next day and we didn't yeah. have the money. Yeah. You know, we're going to figure it out. So we got less than 24 hours to go find $150,000 to go buy this property. And it's amazing what you can do Yeah, when you have that motivation. So we would find people, they would build trust. They would buy the house with us. And, and the way that we were able to do that was we were giving people radical transparency. So yeah. they owned the house. They knew what property it was. They paid all the bills for the renovations. Mm -hmm. And we just took a piece of the profit if it was, if, if it was successful. Okay. So you're doing this on the onesie twosie residential yeah. property you're flipping. Single family homes. Um, but you're making relationships. And one thing I've seen with anybody raising capital on real estate in particular is that investor on that deal you flip, they make money. They're like, when's your next one? And so you probably built an investor base based on doing a hundred plus residential flips. So when did you first do a fund and you aggregate people's money? You know what I mean? Cause that's what yeah. you're doing now, right? It's like, all right, here's the next deal. It's a $50 million deal. And you're like raising capital for it in a specific fund. Um, but like, what was the first type of deals you were doing as you transition out of residential? Well, what we learned about funds is that you do have to have that marketing engine to meet people yeah. because your first fund is always the hardest fund. And no matter how big the fund's going to be, it's going to be the hardest fund to build. So our engine was flipping homes and then doing some private lending where investors could invest in a private loan and get a fixed mm -hmm. rate of return. And so they would meet us, build a relationship with us, do their first transaction or their second transaction. And then in 2013, we, we felt we had enough momentum to open our first fund. So our Okay. Let me actually pause you there because yeah. I had another question before we get too far ahead of ourselves. When did you learn about a self-directed IRA? And like, do, do you, you, did you have self-directed IRAs invested with you way back then on flipping houses? Yeah. <laughs> it was funny because that was our first source of like consistent capital. Yeah. We started to teach investors about how to invest in home flips and, yeah. and private lending mostly. And then okay. that's when we got in the self-directed IRA universe. And it was such a good match because it's your IRA. You're doing hard asset investing. You've got a nice long-term outlook and you don't need liquidity. Right. And it was a perfect fit. So we, we would educate investors about how to do it. And then based on that education, they would come to us and start doing the, the, the investments with us. Okay. I mean, I like that. And I just, every time I'm talking to someone raising capital, I'm always like, guys, people are dying to do something different with their IRA or 401k. Like you people out raising capital, there are people that have IRAs and 401ks. First of all, they didn't even know they could invest in real estate, do private lending or invest in a private real estate fund that they're actually be more excited about that whenever they're invested in. 
but also for anyone raising capital, it is their long-term money. Yeah. And as you know, if someone raising capital, it's like if someone's got 50 grand in their savings account or 50 grand in their IRA, you'd probably rather have the 50 grand in their IRA. Because that 50K in their savings account, they're like, can I get that money back? I want to buy a new car next year. Yeah. I want to go on a vacation. You know, my spouse wants to buy a little bit nicer house, but that money in their IRA, they've already locked it in their brain. Long-term money. Keep it invested. Do the next deal with it too. Yeah, we've actually, as a business, 15 years now later, we're like, we should do more for self-directed IRA investors. (laughs) It's a really good match. And on top of that, in in the environment we're in right now, um, you're in a distressed real estate environment. And the opportunities to invest and generate real growth in your IRA are the best I've seen since 2012. So I think- we have to re-engage with the self-directed community to say, hey, it's yeah. it's the time. Now is the time to place your long-term bets. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. All right. I interrupted your story Sorry. there. Okay. So let's get back to it. I do love that little conversation on self-directed IRAs. Of course, this is a directed IRA webinar and directed IRA podcast episode. So um, most people here listening have self-directed their IRA. And you've had hundreds of self-directed IRAs invest mm-hmm. you. And we've got a lot of accounts here that mm-hmm. have, and I'm sure other companies too. But um, all right. So- let me get back on track on your story of raising capital for the, for the very first deal, like in an aggregated fund. So here's what I did wrong. Um, the fund was too small. It was a $25 million fund, but it was the most we thought we could raise. We thought we would raise it in a year. It took us three. Um, so the first half of the money came in and those guys were already into the deal for three years. And the second half of the money came in three years down the road. Yeah. And they were just getting started. So then, my five-year fund turned into what was going to be now a seven to eight-year fund. And yeah. so I learned a lot of lessons along the way in our first fund. And I think that's important for investors to know because if you're investing in a real estate fund and it's less than a target size of, let's say, 100 million bucks, it's really hard for that fund to be financially successful unless it's only investing in one project or maybe yeah. two projects or a very specific group. You know, if you're just doing a blind pool where you're investing in a fund, the fund manager is going to go out and buy what they think is best. 25 million, too small. So hopefully that's a helpful tip. Um, And that's important for anyone who is investing is when you're looking at the the private placement memorandum or the offering document in it, is this property specific that they're investing in? Um, Some of them are like, well, our strategy is value add multifamily and we're going to look at opportunities in these states and, and, but you don't know what the hell they're buying. This could be 10 different deals. This could be in the, you know, what point do they acquire and what point are you out? When do other investors come in? It can be a mess. And, um, and we see those, but I do think, I'll be honest, especially the smaller operators are most successful one property. This is it. This is what you know what you're getting into. Um, And I just from my own experience and looking at accounts and seeing the success of operators on the smaller level, it is the property specific. Some people may call them just a syndication. It's one property type deal where I I think we see success. Yeah. And what you'll see too is funds are great. You know, investment advisors love funds, larger investors love funds, but you have to have size and scale. Yeah. And so if you can execute on the deal side as a smaller operator doing a couple deals a year, that's great. But you should probably do individual funds and individual offerings on each project. From an investor's perspective, being in a fund is safer. It's more diversified. There's potentially better buying opportunities at scale that you can get, maybe a bigger upside. But you've got to have a, a fund manager who knows how to do that at a larger size. So. All right. Now, what are some of the, give me like an example of the deal. Like what were the stuff you were doing in that first fund compared to now? I mean, I presume the deals have gotten bigger over time. Maybe not. 
you know, same stuff. I'm about to show you. So, all right, let's so, share these so, slides so, being shared. So let's, okay, yeah, cool. let's all talk right. about where we're at at this moment in time. Okay. It, everybody knows that interest rates are up and there's inflation, right? But when you look at this chart, that is the fastest rate of increase in modern history. It's not just that interest rates are up. It's up that they're up and they, so they grew so quickly that nobody in the real estate market could really react and do anything about it. Yeah. We just all get to go through it. Now, yeah. Caliber happened to be lucky because we own a bunch of hotels. And so we were so busy taking care of our hotels through COVID that we weren't overly investing and raising capital through this period of time. So we're not that heavily exposed to it compared yeah. to almost all of our competitors, but um, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And, and we were, <laughs> you know, we were kind of really focused on recycling and rebuilding our fund strategies. So all of the funds that we have in our business are brand new. They have very little, if no exposure at all to the last market cycle. But what I'm about to sh show you answers the question on, on deals. Yeah. So, all of this rise in interest rates causes these problems. All okay. of these problems start to create this situation. So we're going to do a little math, um, and I'm right. going to describe the math Chris for our in podcast public accounting listeners. for a long time. So, was, well, not a long time, but for a while. For a very, it felt like a long time. Yeah. It was a very <laughs> short time. A lot of hours, let's say. <laughs> but for our podcast listeners, I'm going to I'm going to describe this too. So you got here's the original plan prior to the market turnover. So you're buying a hundred million dollar multifamily project. You're going to get an 80% loan, 80 million bucks. It's a value add deal. So you're going to go clean it up, increase the rents. And you think that it'll be worth 120, 20% increase over your purchase price is pretty typical for underwriting. Mm -hmm. Once it's worth 120, you're going to go to Fannie Mae. You're going to get a 75%, you know, long-term mortgage on that for 90 million bucks. You give your investors half their money back tax-free and you're yeah. making an 8% cash on cash return and 13% IRR. Home run deal. Lots of people probably invested in these. Lots of people wanted to do these deals. Okay. And it's, it's pretty typical uh, for the cycle. This is what that deal looks like today if I'm being extremely generous. <laughs> so that $120 million property is now worth 100 because the market's down about 20%. So even though you may have added the value and you renovated the pro yeah. property and you, you did all the things that came with it, you, you lost value. Yeah. The mortgage underwriting has gotten harder. So now you're not getting a 75% mortgage, you're getting a 65% mortgage. So now you've got a $65 million loan to take out your $80 million bridge loan and your mortgage is due. Mm -hmm. And now your interest rate has gone up. And so the cash flow is gone. You're making no cash flow at all. Your internal rate of return, meaning what you think you're going to make on the investment is in question. And if you put a million dollars in this deal as an investor, the sponsor is coming to you and saying, I need you to write a check for $750,000 yeah. to protect your million. Well, what do I get if I put in the seven fifty? I don't know. When am I going to get my money back? I'm not sure. Yeah. So that is a tough question that a lot of people are going to have. That's going to cause a change in the cycle. And that's what starts to produce this. So the last little thing I've got to share with you on distress is this is an example. The picture is not the picture of the actual deal because it's a live deal we're working on. It's a 400,000 square foot two different office buildings. One of them we're going to convert to multifamily. The other one we're going to keep as office. And then it comes with six and a half acres of land that we would build single family for rent, basically another product on site. We can buy this thing for roughly, we think 40 to 60 bucks a foot. So mm -hmm. class A office for one fifth of what it costs to build. Mm -hmm. And then we would be all into it, fully renovated into a new product for roughly 65 million. So the spread between 65 million in cost and hundred million in today's value 
that's what a distressed deal looks like. Yeah. You don't make a 20% return. You make a significantly higher return because there's a much lower entry point and a much better turnaround that comes from that. So that's why I said it's a good investment opportunity to invest today. So like what, like from a fund standpoint, like where are people, like, let's say you're like, all right, I believe it's distressed. I know there's some private real estate funds out there. How do I know that that funds deals right now are the new good deals versus that fund has got a bunch of crappy old deals in it. Um, and I mean, are your guys's property specific now? Are there rolling funds of multiple assets in it? So broadly speaking, you got to look at when they bought the assets. Yeah. If they, if they bought or negotiated the purchase of the asset prior to the interest rates going up, chances are they overpaid. And if they, if you ask the question and they can't intelligently answer how they didn't overpay, yeah, you probably need to be careful. Okay. Um, Caliber's lucky, like I said, in that in the early part of 2022, before interest rates started going up, we actually started to recycle all of our funds because we opened up a new way to invest in our funds for registered investment advisors and broker dealers. And so in order to do that, we had to close our funds, reopen new ones. And so we were out of, we were out of the game. And mm-hmm. so all of our stuff is new as of uh, the end of last year. And we haven't started buying until this year. So it's a, it's a good time to get in with, with, anybody who's doing new offerings post post 2022. Yeah. Okay. So there's like blood in the water. It's kind of, you know, and you're out there like going to go find the carnage. There's opportunity to be money to be made. There's rumors of another RTC. Yeah. There's um, a year ago, everything I'm telling you was theory. Yeah. Six months ago, we started seeing our first deals as of two months ago, we're actually negotiating on projects. Where are the deals coming from? Are you getting these like, like are banks starting to take back properties? Are they forcing owners to be like, dude, you got a deal on this in the next six months. I mean, like, where are they coming from? So the private credit universe, private banking is four times larger than the traditional banking universe. So there's debt funds that have to deal with these and they move a lot Mm -hmm. faster than banks. Um, All of the small and regional banks, they call them ABLs or balance sheet lenders Mm -hmm. that have debt on their books at 3% on an asset that's now underwater that's due and they can't refinance. That's where it's coming from. And then, um, of course, office is getting killed. Yeah. So any, any office, anyone who's got a loan on an office building is trying to figure out exactly what that's worth today. Okay. Now office, I know there's lots of logistical things on office, converting all the bathrooms and plumbing. I mean, on that deal, you mentioned this one you're looking at, um, Tell me like the amount of diligence that goes into it. Like what type of team do you guys have in particular to go analyze that deal to figure out the numbers on it? Yeah. So we got to, we have a, cause I have to say, I have to say, let me just, if I, if you yeah. don't mind me interjecting, I like that. I, I like an operator that's just not going to be like, all right, we're going to go buy this multifamily property, put in some new paint and appliances, you know, put a couple amenities in there, like a little, a couple treadmills and a little weight set. I'm like, is that really going to drive value? <laughs> Is that really going to drive value? But someone that can take something and totally repurpose it, that knows what they're doing, that that can find a significant discount where you're also you're paying like one fifth of what the build value would be, um, could be huge. But you freaking have to know what you're doing because just being like, oh, I'm going to take a commercial office building and turn it into residential, mm, that might seem a little harder than you think. It's a lot harder than you think. And I'd I'd say you know your your example on the multifamily guys, that stuff works great when the market's going up. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're 
you're willing to take the risk. You're going to jump in, you're going to do the paint and carpet thing, but it's a commodity. Anyone can do it. It's not that hard. There's a lot of competition. And when the market turns on you, you're in trouble. And, yeah. and if you don't know how to pivot or you don't know how to go in a different direction, then you're probably going to lose your project. And so uh, we've got a hundred employees at caliber. Um, we've got in-house development, in-house construction management, in-house real estate brokerage and leasing. Um, so we have a lot of in-house knowledge. And then our platform is designed to be what we call an open architecture. So that means that somebody who has a great deal that they've been working on for a couple of years, but maybe they can't raise the money to build it, or they need mm -hmm. a bigger organization to help them take it to the next level. They can bring that to us. We'll partner with them on the project. We'll keep them in the deal if they want to stay in. We'll split the fees and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we execute together. So we have, as an example, on the office conversion side, we have a partner that is an expert in conversions and they're doing, they've already done an office conversion. We're, we're doing a hotel conversion right now together. We're working on the next office conversion coming up and they've figured out how do you run the hallway down the center of the office building? How do you change the plumbing stack? How yeah. do you like bump in the, uh, the windows to create balconies, like all of those things mm -hmm. they've done it. So that's part of how we, uh, we work together. Okay. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, I want to talk about um, pickleball. pickleball. Are you a pickleballer? I um, I have taken one pickleball class. Uh, you took a class for this? <laughs> I took a class. Uh -huh. I, well, I know it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, that in a negative way. I mean, I took lessons to learn how to ski, to play tennis. I was at a resort a and there was serious. a pickleball class. And I was like, well, it seems to be popular. And we're I mean, doing if, a pickleball you don't, if, you don't, if you don't have someone to play with that knows the rules, you don't know what you're doing. Exactly. You'll be on YouTube for an hour or two trying to figure it out. My neighbor in the cul-de-sac has a pickleball court. And he yeah. does pickleball every other Thursday and he keeps inviting me. And I'm like, I don't know how to play. So I got to take a class. You oh, know? Okay. That's, right. So I did my one class, but yeah. that's it. I have a pickleball court in my backyard and I played like three or four times. <laughs> yeah. Aaron, Aaron and his wife smoked me and my wife. So, um, so we are like, we're not playing this anymore. It's not our sport. No, it's kidding. <laughs> but, um, okay. So the reason I bring up pickleball is not just, you know, for shits and giggles here, but, um, Tell me what's going on with pickleball right now. You guys are building out and you have a new project yeah. with so pickleball. I'll show you a visual here. Um, this is the um, largest pickleball facility in the United States is what we're, we're putting together. Um, it is, uh, I'll show you where it's located here in a second, but that building in the back is all indoor courts. And then we have outdoor courts and we, okay, have, cool. a, we have a professional pickleball like tournament essentially um, so that you can see pro teams playing on a pro court uh, okay. as well. Um, pro teams. Are these like two person teams or like, Oh, there's, there's whole, there's, there's, there's like you, leagues of like, this, this has gone yeah. insane. Pickleball mania has hit. So, well, I know you like go by the tennis court at a local park. No one's playing tennis. It's full it's, of just pickleball courts now. Yeah. And it's just, you hear the dink, dink, yeah. dink, <laughs> dink. Uh, so this, this facility will be the future home to USA pickleball, which is the, one of the professional organizations that runs all the pro pickleball sports. Okay, cool. And hopefully we think the AZ drive, which is actually our, our Arizona pro team. Okay. Um, so, uh, and then here's the location just so you can see. And for those of you who are on the podcast, um, the location is essentially in the center of the city of Scottsdale. It's in it's the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community, which runs right along the 101 freeway. Yeah. Um, really accessible for the entire valley. It's in the middle of the city. It's in an opportunity zone, which maybe we'll talk about opportunity yeah. zones. Um, and um, 
it's going to be part of a cohesive sports village that we're developing as well as an entertainment complex that we're developing. So it's a really cool location for this, um, for this project. And so the theory is that our partners who created the pure pickleball concept, we're, we're going to partner with them in the real estate and the business. We're going to help them develop and build this concept. And then supposedly uh, I think it'll work quite well. And then we'll roll it out to the top, probably 30 cities across the country. Oh, okay. So All right. it's going to be a prototype almost here. Like we, the first run at it. Yeah. We think it's a private membership club. It's kind of like going to the village where you got your okay. club and you got a nice little facility. You can play pickleball anytime you want, but you can uh, also have okay. leagues. You can have semi-pro amateur, you can have okay. training and then you have the pro team there. And okay. so it can house the pro team in each of those big cities. Interesting. Okay. Great idea. Okay, you got some legit people backing this for people who know some of these names in Arizona at least. You kind of it's kind of like a a celebrity list of Arizona business and sports people actually. Yeah, the, these are <laughs> all the guys that are <laughs> that are in the Arizona team. We okay. have not put them into the the the, the investment or the development yet. Yeah. We act we don't have anything to offer them yet, but I have never made an announcement about what we're doing yeah. and had so much inbound Right. Yeah. Everybody is obsessed with pickleball. So seriously, no, you're onto something there. And I think that's, uh, again, it's like, what is the, the person's strategy in real estate, you know, and, and it's like, go to what's hot and what no one's doing yeah. and where there's demand and future opportunity for growth, which is where there's money to be made. Well, and how do you protect the downside? In this case, we're building an industrial building with some surface courts. It's not mm -hmm. that expensive. We can repurpose an industrial building in this location for anything else. So God forbid it's not successful, which we think it'll be really successful. We also think about how we protect your downside. Okay. That's a great point. Um, all right. Let's talk about going uh, public. Like, why did you guys do a public offering? Why did, you know, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, the public markets are why the worst. Why don't you guys go public? I don't know. I don't, I don't want shareholders that can yell at me. Well, you already have <laughs> shareholders that can yell at you. No, they're nice to me. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, so, that answer to that question is not obvious, I think, to most people because um, there's big public companies and little public companies. It's kind of, there's some yeah. medium size, but there's really big and little. About 60% of public companies in the United States are small. Um, and the way I think about it is it's sort of like public venture capital. Most of the small public companies use it to do oil and gas exploration or mm -hmm. to develop a new drug or launch a new technology that is very risky. And so you buy into these little IPOs. If they strike it big and they find the oil, then the stock goes bananas. And if they don't, then it goes to zero. That's kind of the small public company universe. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they go public is because developing a drug is really risky. So if they go public, then they can raise the money five grand at a time or 10 grand at a time instead of asking you as an investor to put a million bucks into a oil and gas deal, right? Yeah. That doesn't have anything to do with why we went public. <laughs> um, why, but it's, it's, it's important to know why, how you differentiate us as a small, smaller public company compared to others. The reason why we went public is because we manage well over 60 uh, partnerships. Um, some are discretionary funds. Some are individual asset partnerships. All of them are securities under, under various forms of Reg D offerings. And to do that effectively, we need the infrastructure of a public company which we have. So all of mm -hmm. our major funds are all audited by Deloitte. We have in-house tax and financial reporting, all the things that are necessary to take care of the, the, the capital and take care of your investment and make sure it doesn't go sideways are inside of Caliber. And so we've had that for years. And one day, years ago, we looked at it and said, gee, we're paying for the cost of being a public company. 
but yeah. not getting any of the benefit. So what are the benefits? Um, for us, they're unique. Um, first on the list that comes to mind is talent. Um, mm. Real estate investment is all driven by how good you are at finding great deals and bringing them into your business. That's why there's so many one and two person entrepreneurial companies. Um, we can actually offer real estate entrepreneurs a platform where they can be part of something bigger and own real stock in the company. Um, another reason is debt before the banking crisis. And before the rise in interest rates, debt was a commodity. It was easy to get pretty much anyone could, if you had a pulse mm -hmm. today, it's the hardest moment in time I've ever experienced to get debt, which for caliber is actually a good thing because it's, it's a, it's a moat for our business. Yeah. It boxes out most of our competitors and any new entrants that are like, Oh, I want to try this real estate game. Yeah, good luck. Take down go, go to a yeah. bank and ask for a piece of debt right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so just getting debt is hard and then getting debt at a better price. Hopefully as a public sponsor of the debt, we can actually get a better deal. Um, and then, um, mo also importantly in, in my business is fundraising. And so investment advisors, uh, broker dealers, larger institutions sometimes can't invest in some of these smaller real estate funds because they can't get through the due diligence process. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough visibility into what's going on in the sponsor's business. Are there lawsuits? Are there problems? This, yeah. that, the other thing. And so by being a public sponsor of private real estate funds, our investors invest in the private funds. They don't invest in the public company. They invest in the private funds. We don't raise capital in the public markets, so we don't dilute our shareholders to get money. Mm -hmm. We raise it in the private funds. But the investors in those funds know that the company that's taking care of the fund is public, is transparent, and hopefully has better staying power than most of the smaller entrepreneurs mm -hmm. they might work with. So That makes sense. Those are some great reasons. All good reasons. All good reasons. <laughs> so, all right, let me, you mentioned something about due diligence. So I want to talk about this for fun because a lot of, you know, it's one of the most common investments that people make with a self-directed IRA. And let's see if there's any questions. You let me know, Aaron, if we got questions here. Um, but I want to hit a couple other points. One of which is due diligence. When someone's investing in a private fund, I think one of the things they do is everybody says, well, do your due diligence. And some private funds have a third party that will do a due diligence mm -hmm kind of not an audit, it's probably right the way, but maybe a report um, on the fund itself. And so there's already a third party thing just standing there for any investor that they can grab. Can you talk through that? Like, what's the difference? What, what is in that type of report? And what do sure. you guys do at Caliber? Yeah. So um, there's two things you want to diligence, the fund and the underlying assets. So where are they? Are they good? Is the fund structure, all that stuff. And then the sponsor, which is caliber or the company that's running the fund, the general partner for the fund. Um, so at, as at the fund level in those underlying assets, you're looking for, is this the structure market rate? Is there anything in the fund document that allows them to do anything weird? Like um, mm. early in our business, we had a, hundreds of investors come to us because of a company in town that launched a fund that was raising $3 million and it was disclosed in the fund document 2.7 million of the 3 million is going to go into the fund manager's pocket to reimburse himself for expenses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically he raised $3 million and took the investor money and walked away. Yeah. And it's like that type of stuff you want to look for. It's not always that obvious, but there are some fund issues that you need to look at. And then are the underlying assets good? Is the debt structure good? All of that kind of stuff. That fund level report can be done by yourself or by a third party. We use Factrite. Factrite is one of the largest third-party um, due diligence providers in the country. And they'll do a fund-level report to say, hey, this fund 
it's 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 well structured. There's a good law firm. There's a good team back. They they actually have a track record of doing these things. There's no guarantee of success, but they've shown it before. We looked at all the deals in the fund. They mm-hmm. looked at the title reports. They actually own these assets. All of yeah. that kind of stuff. And then it comes to a conclusion that's actually uh, opaque to us. We don't get to see what their conclusion is. Yeah, yeah. Where they say, you know, is this is this a good or bad investment? But also, you know, do you as an investor have a fulsome understanding of what it is? They also do that on the sponsor. So each one of these reports, probably between 30 and 60 pages, mm-hmm. um, very similar to like uh, what you would have to do to prepare for any sort of like more legal filings and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So it's good. The downside, fact right reports are only available to investment advisors and brokers. They don't send them out to individual investors. So um, if you're working with a fund sponsor like us, mm-hmm and our products are licensed under FINRA, then it's highly likely that we have this infrastructure in place. Yeah. If you're working with the average real estate fund sponsor that is not selling a FINRA licensed product, essentially, then it's highly likely they don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of, um, you know, people raising money, you know, fund sponsor are going to do it because they have to. You know, there's some, certain people are going to do it because they want to, and it's it's just kind of part of the business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a cost, but you want to have that third party check. It's almost kind of like, you know, it, it's just some third party diligence thing on on what you're doing, and a little like, all right, you can feel comfortable in what we're doing. Someone else has looked at this besides just the people selling it. But what if I am an individual investor not using an advisor and someone has this? Can I get it? Or is it only going to go through fact right? It's going to be like, yeah, this is not for use outside of advisors and their, yeah, and their customers. It's designed for um, – for, it's actually – the report is owned by the advisor almost. So it's yeah. not even owned by Caliber. We pay for it, but the advisor right. owns it. So they have to have it that way. Um, having said that, it is a pretty clear, bright line. Um, if you're If you're – product is, has a managing broker dealer and it has a FINRA related representative, it's highly likely that there is a lot of that infrastructure in place because the broker dealer also has to do due diligence, which is a second third party involved. If you're selling as a, as a sponsor, which is a sponsor, they call it the sponsor exemption where you can sell your product without having a broker dealer associated with you. Um, nothing wrong with that. We did it for a long time as caliber, um, which means that I, as the principal of the company have to run around and do all the fundraising and also find the deals and also manage yeah, it all. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to have a staff, but, um, in that case, there really isn't a third party involved, at least at the fund level, there's banks and other things like that, but that doesn't mean it's a bad deal. It just means that the onus is on you as the investor to do more diligence probably. Okay. So you like, you mentioned a couple of things, look at the asset itself, mm-hmm. the debt structure of it, obviously what's their plan, what's their strategy, the track record, the people, um, the people that are going to be involved. Um, and then we talked about just kind of fun structure at the beginning too, of, is this like an open-ended kind of blind pool type fund? Is this property specific type fund and making those decisions? I mean, I'm telling you, there's probably 10 to 15 people today that invest with their IRA from directed IRA into a private fund. Yep. You know what I mean? It's happening every day. It's very popular. And so um, knowing some of these things to ask for and what to look for is really important. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about your hospitality trust. I want to talk about REITs too. Yeah. Um, a lot of times we've talked about REITs in a negative fashion because a lot of, you know, and some people are like, all right, I want to buy real estate in my IRA. They go talk to Fidelity and Fidelity is like, well, you could buy real estate in your IRA. We've got this publicly traded REIT that you can buy. And they're like, oh, 
well, I don't need to move to directed IRA to buy real estate. I can buy this publicly traded REIT. Yep. And that is an option. You can do that. But there are also privately traded REITs or non-publicly traded REITs that are essentially a private fund that has simply got a REIT tax classification. And so I want to make sure everyone understands that. There's REITs that could be publicly traded, which is a securities law thing. But there's also a privately traded REIT that could just be like a private fund that has simply met the requirements from a tax standpoint to be a REIT. So tell me on the REIT. Why did you guys do a REIT on this one? If I don't mind ask, you've got not all of your funds. I'm have here a to REIT an- I'm sitting in Matt's chair to answer Matt's questions. Whatever yeah. Matt wants, I'm here for you, buddy. All right. Um, that one's yours then. All right. I'm going. <laughs> so, REIT? I, know, I know why I love it for IRAs, but <laughs> you know, so here, here's the deal. Um, I, I don't know that's why you did it. We're going to go so deep into the weeds that we're going to hopefully not bore everybody to death. But I think this is actually kind of interesting. So there's two major trends going on in real estate investment right now. Um, one that I think is a little bit hidden and one that will that's obvious. So the obvious trend is everybody is looking for equity-like returns in a debt-like structure, which is basically mezzanine, pr- private lending, uh, preferred equity investments, et cetera. And the reason why is that most people who own real estate don't want to sell at the price that the market will bear today because the prices and the values have come down, mm-hmm. but they need capital to like pay down their debt and refinance and things like that. So they're offering a preferred equity investment where let's say you've got a $10 million project and you've got 5 million in equity and 5 million in debt. Well, if you have to pay down a million of your 5 million in debt, you might offer a million dollars in preferred equity in the middle of your, your common and your debt. And in order for you to lose on that investment as an investor, you'd have to lose, you'd have to sell that property for less than 5 million to affect the preferred equity because the common loses all their money first, basically. So mm-hmm. that's the debt like structure with the equity like return. Cause you get it, you know, preferred equity is paying between eight and 14%, depending mm-hmm. on a whole bunch of factors. Um, so that's one component of it. The other component that is coming next, which is why what answers the REIT question is, at some point in time, everybody's going to look at these real estate portfolios that they own, which has already started to happen, and say, gee, we have to pay down this debt because at 3% or 4% interest, we had cash flow, but at 9 and 10% interest, we don't, and we're losing mm-hmm. money, and the debt's unsustainable. The best way to do that and how that's historically happened every time in every major cycle has been rolling up private portfolios in into a REIT structure, a private REIT. Mm-hmm. It's a tax-free exchange, so the person who owns the portfolio can sell to the to the REIT without paying that taxes, and then you build scale. So you get yeah. a bigger and bigger portfolio, multi-billions of dollars of assets, and with the bigger scale, you can get better debt. You can then prepare the company to go public, do an IPO, use the IPO proceeds to delever the portfolio. It's a much better way to create liquidity and sell without having to actually sell off individual assets at a bad time. Okay. I like that. Okay. So that is the big trend. That's what Caliber's doing in the hotel space. Okay. So there's, um, I mean, because you guys have scale, lots of other assets, mm-hmm. you have other funds, you're using those, putting them into a larger structure. There's no tax so consequence to yeah, it. Yeah. So we're adding the public company infrastructure, the hundred plus employees we have, yeah. all the different infrastructure we have in place to create a second public company that we yeah. or a company we intend to take public. Okay. We're put in 180 million of our hotels into that company. We created the whole structure, built it all, contributed our assets. Now we have third party contributors, other people who own hotels across the country that are putting their hotels in and oh, bulking yeah. up the portfolio. And the intent is to grow it beyond a billion dollars in assets and eventually take it public. Got it. So when we do that, 
it's a huge win for the contributors because they get a better valuation, they don't pay tax, they eventually get liquidity, and they can keep their management company in place and continue to grow their company. If they sell off half their hotels to get liquidity or to pay down their debt, mm-hmm. they just killed their management company. Yeah. So this is a better way for them to proceed. Um, it'll be the first roll-up into a public hotel REIT since mm-hmm. 2011. It's been mm-hmm. a long time. But if you look back over the last 50, 60 years, after every two years after every major black swan, roughly, there's a roll-up of hotels into the public markets. Um, and okay. it works the same way in many of the other asset classes. And so that's what Caliber's doing. Okay. Um, and we happen to be offering preferred equity in that deal. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now you guys, I'm just going to go back in time here because you used to be flipping houses on Baltic Avenue. <laughs> now you're doing hotels on where you're like Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah, not down you know, the boardwalk. Monroe Gardens yet. maybe. Monroe you know? Gardens. Let's okay. right. <laughs> not get too crazy. Yeah. Rents aren't bad there. Pretty good. But um, okay. So, but you've already had a number of hotel assets. I know you guys have been in the hotel space for a little bit. I've been mm-hmm. to some of your conferences and stuff um, that I know you just have here in town. What other, where else do you have stuff in that hospitality hotel space? Are so outside of the Phoenix yeah, Metro? The roll up from what I can disclose okay. is, you know, right now we have a portfolio in Virginia. So Virginia Beach was the number one market performing during COVID. And we have a portfolio of hotels coming in from there um, that okay. we've disclosed. The rest I can't disclose. Okay. Right. Um, but, um, you know, our view is that first, why hotel? Well, because in 2013 or 2014, following the 2008 financial crisis, that's when most hotels were renovated after the last cycle. Every seven years, a hotel has to be renovated. So that means that those hotels mm-hmm. were due to be renovated in 2020 and 2021. Yeah. They were shut down and losing money and bleeding. So none of the brands forced a renovation. So now it's t- we're going into 2024. Yeah. They're way so late. it's like a Marriott flagged place. Yeah. They're like, you got six months you, to get your you shit together. You have to get your renovation. And by the way, that's going to cost you $2 million, and that's on you. Exactly. And for $20 those, million, and whatever. <laughs> and normally that $2 million is sitting in an FF&E reserve, uh, and, and, and those reserves were bled down to zero to pay for losses during COVID. So now the hotel owners have no reserves. Their debt is due. Mm. The lender is asking to be paid down. The franchise wants you to renovate your hotel you don't have a lot of places it to go. Sounds like distress. It sounds like distress. <laughs> and so why hotel? I know your type, Chris. I know your type. <laughs> the, the second piece of it, though, is for the rare time in history, you actually saw supply shrink. Yeah. So hotels like in New York were converted to homeless shelters, and they're not coming back into the system. And yeah. so demand is back and going higher. Yeah. Supply shrunk. And the hotels that do exist desperately need to be renovated. So mm. that's what's creating the the why now in the hotel space. Okay. And the only reason why Caliber's positioned to do it compared to anybody else is that we both own hotels and understand that piece. And we have the public platform, yeah. which most companies don't. And you've got a smart, smart, a smart strategy with this REIT model. And I didn't know you could do that. That's a great little thing. How you can combine in these other assets together, tax-free exchange. They're keeping their equity in the deal for what they have. You, whoever else is in there is keeping their equity. You have investors coming in though right now too, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. people are investing in this and new people dropping money into this, owning a piece of the asset. And that's the hospitality yeah, we, we have the, the CHT preferred um, offering. It's a up to $50 million offering. It's available for accredited investors. We're raising it now. Um, that's $50 million out of about a $200 million raise. And it's the first time in Caliber's history where we're offering 
individual investors an opportunity to go side by side with an institutional investor. Yeah. Um, so it's a big raise. It's the money we're using to roll up this billion plus dollar portfolio and renovate these properties and prepare it for, uh, for the future. Okay. So now one of the notes for IRAs, and this is on just private REITs or REITs in general is, you know, there's a tax called UDFI on assets that are leveraged with, with debt mm-hmm. um, in the real estate space. If you're using an IRA, you may have to deal with this. We have other podcasts, it's a whole chapter in my book on it, but REITs are exempt from this. Yep. So it's nice, it's clean. You don't have to think about it um, if you're using an IRA in a fund that has REIT status like this one. So, um, and there's, there's other ones out there, of course, and this is not meant to be like, Oh, you should invest in caliber and think about it. I just have Chris here cause he's an expert and they're doing cool things. But. Well, and we did a second thing just to yeah. speak of REIT, REIT blockers. So for, for the preferred, that's a good one. Uh, mm-hmm. but also in our core plus fund, which is basically a fund buying income producing stable assets, think, you know, the strategy of the B REIT, which is the largest core core plus investor in the country, but much smaller, mm-hmm. um, we think it's a good time to buy stabilized assets because those larger funds are shedding those properties and selling them to try to get liquidity so they can pay redemptions. And so that's creating a buying opportunity for us. We created a private fund, but in this fund, it's the first time we've ever created a REIT blocker. Okay. So now as a self-directed IRA investor, you can come in through the REIT blocker, you invest in the REIT, and you avoid all that UDFI and all that nonsense. Um, so you're still invested in a private yeah. real estate fund. It's a stable real estate fund buying income properties, but yeah. you get to invest in a more favorable way. Yeah. This is, oh, sorry about that. I threw my pen at Chris. That was, I was, I was just about to compliment him because I love Chris and I, we had lunch on, it was a couple of years ago and Chris started talking about UBIT and UDFI. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love this guy. Um, he, and he thought through some of this stuff and some of the pain points that IRAs have and kind of a, a, also like a roadblock for some people where they're like, ah, I like my IRA, no tax, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm always like, well, look at the total return. If you have to pay UDFI, who the hell cares on a real estate deal if it otherwise performs and it's better than the mutual fund you would have been into. Um, but a lot of people do get stuck on it and these REIT blockers um, or it's just a REIT structure in and of itself on a deal is just really nice because it doesn't cost you anything from mm-hmm. a tax standpoint. Mm-hmm. The company's not having to get a cost structure in it. It's just like, I don't want to say a loophole. It's just a structure the IRS allows that makes it kind of cool so you don't have to worry about it. It's a totally legal loophole. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's not everyone that can do it because they've got to have a certain volume of investors. You can't just do it with like 10 investors. And you have like 100 plus. That's, it's that's be the benefit income. of size and scale. And that's kind of goes back to my earlier point of if you're going to invest in a fund and be diversified, the fund can create these features for you that actually enhance the investor experience. And that's really, at the end of the day, the purpose of our business is to, develop and build wealth for our clients, um, understand their needs and do it through real estate and make it easy for you. So that's sort of like, you know, it's really complicated to do all this stuff. It took us a long time to learn it. We've made our own mistakes as a business over 15 years trying to get it right. Uh, as you know, some of our early customers know, you know, everybody, every business does make mistakes, Yeah. which as a diligence question, you should ask the sponsor, how many deals have gone wrong and describe them to me. And if they say, Oh no, we haven't had any deals that go wrong. Um, that's the red flag. Yeah. And they don't have enough experience, yeah. right? They don't really, it's like, it's like the player on your team. Have you ever lost a game? I've never lost a game. How many of you played one? Yeah. Okay. All right. You never probably... lost a fight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> only had one. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about that. If you don't mind me asking, tell me about it. Like what's been a lesson you've learned a deal that's gone bad where you've like, man, and it could be, you know, your own, you know, doing or the market or whatever, but where have you had like a hard lesson and, you know, um, a couple of hard ones in our, in our business um, as we've grown and scaled. Um, on the deal side, we we acquired um, a building when we were just 
barely getting into um, apartment investing. It was like mm-hmm. roughly, I think it was like a 25 unit building somewhere in that range. So it was relatively small. We bought it direct from a bank, REO, distressed, same yeah. story. Okay. Um, and we just thought, ah, oh, we're going to clean this thing up. It's going to be great. And it just, it didn't go that way. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I'll save you the details, but it didn't go that way. And for a variety of reasons, we basically ended up triggering code upgrades and the building was built in 1950 and then our $400,000 renovation turned into like a $4 million renovation. Uh, and it was just insane. So, um, the lesson I learned there was, you know, in, in, in real estate, it actually is highly dependent on how hard you're willing to work and how good your imagination is and your team is on whether that's going to be successful. So we actually sold that mm-hmm. our investor made money. We made nothing. Um, that investor rolled all of his proceeds into another deal, which is our probably second, second horror story. And oh, really? yeah, yeah. uh, that was a four points hotel that we bought in Ahwatukee. We thought it was a home run. Marriott had just announced they were buying Starwood and we were like, well, Marriott, we're going to be part of the Marriott family. The, the thing is going to go through the moon. Yeah. And then Marriott bought Starwood, shut it down, killed four points completely in our minds and, and yeah. left us with a horrible uh, operating result and, and, and P and So then we went into COVID, we ended up shutting the hotel down, but we're opportunistic. We work the deals. We find a way forward. We bought a three acre piece next to it, realized, wow, this could be a really good combined apartment pro- project between the hotel and the three acre piece we bought. And now we have just uh, launched an offering, raising money for the conversion of this hotel and the three acre piece to 188 units of residential. Mm-hmm. Our investors saw their balance in their investment go to zero. It's the first yeah. time I've ever had a post to zero to an investor account. Yeah. And based on the structure we built, we believe we'll recover a hundred percent of that capital. Yeah. So it's okay. just, you got to keep working the deals. Yeah. And I I'd say on the, on the real, on the business side, for those of you who are watching that hopefully are in my business or colleagues, uh, the thing I learned is, in the early days, when you're close to all your investors and you're meeting on a regular basis and you have calls, there's so much deep trust there that you don't really need much communication infrastructure. Mm-hmm. They just know you're doing the right thing. Yeah. When you get to 2,000 plus clients and 60 different partnerships and quarterly reports become a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think we were a little late to the game as a business in trying to get all the infrastructure necessary to get the information from the hands of the construction guys and the developers and the property managers into a cohesive report, into our clients' hands, into a quarterly report to produce a quarterly evaluation, to set their expectations on when distributions were going to occur and all the hard stuff you have to do as Mm -hmm. a fund sponsor. So that's the one thing that younger fund sponsors have to really focus on is if you build the infrastructure early on how you communicate with your customers, you'll be more successful. Yeah. And I think those examples you gave show that you guys were in it for the long haul, right? You were willing to stay on a deal, work it out, not walk away from it, not wipe out the investors. You're like your reputation's on the line. Um, and you guys have other great projects and things going on. So you're like, man, we're just going to keep at it and figure out how to make it work, even if it takes time. Yep. Um, that's costing your team time, obviously your time too. Um, but I think it's the right thing to do. And I think that's what... Um, for any business owner, you know, whether it's a tough project or an assignment you took on or, you know, I don't care if you're providing services or goods or what it is, like, that's your reputation at the end of the day. And when you're talking about people investing money, you Reputation know, gotta, is all. Yeah, that's it's all you all, got. That's all you have. The only thing we really sell is trust and yeah. hard work. And if you, if you, in order to earn the trust, you got to do the hard work, I think. Yeah. All right. Let's see what we got. Any questions, Aaron? Yeah, so... This has been great. Um, 
So what, what's the process exactly if, you know, you have stock. So I'm a, I'm a client, uh, you know, IRA investor. I have publicly traded stocks in a retirement account. What's the process that I would need to do in order to move to a self-directed IRA and then look at investing with caliber? Are there any tax consequences and what are the steps? Okay. All right. So basically this is for everybody that wants to self-direct in general. If you've got an IRA, maybe it's a Fidelity or TD Ameritrade, you know, I guess you could probably buy caliber stock if you wanted, you know, <laughs> um, you, know you do that. So, and again, this is, you know, all disclosure is buy whatever you want. Talk to your own investment advisors. Chris is here as an expert, but we're a great company. Yeah. <laughs> I believe He's it. publicly traded. So we can as, say that as you know? the largest shareholder in the business and, and a true yeah. believer, we are a great company. Yeah. So, and obviously that's why we have them here is what they've been able to do, which has been pretty remarkable here in town. And um, congrats, by the way, to your success. This Thank is, you. this is lawyer, Matt, given all these disclaimers. So, um, but for, let's say you're going to invest in a private fund. You want to go into the pickleball deal. You want to do this hospitality trust thing or something that, that Chris mentioned. You want to buy a duplex down the street, whatever you're at fidelity. You're going to need to move that account or portion of it to directed IRA, go to directedira.com. You can schedule a new account call with one of our counterparts and we handle this for you. It's a three-step process. Step one is you open that account at a self-directed provider. Step two is you transfer the funds over which you can, which is not a taxable event. So that's just a tax-free transfer of the account. Um, if it's an old 401k, it's called the rollover. Now this is in your directed account. Now it's funded. Then step three is you authorize the investment. So in any of these funds, Chris mentioned, you would have typically a subscription agreement. I think you mentioned most of these need to be an accredited investor. Mm-hmm. There's a subscription agreement you would fill out. Your IRA is the buyer on this. You'd put directed trust company, FBO, Matt Sorensen IRA. That's the buyer, not Matt Sorensen. The subscriber buyer is directed trust company, FBO, your account. And then maybe you want to put in 50 grand, let's say. Um, that's actually a question we should ask. I don't know if that was in the chat too. It's just like, what is the minimums typically on a private fund for your funds or just in general in the market? Yeah. In general, in the market, they typically range between 50 and 500,000, depending on a whole variety of factors. Uh, our lowest minimum we have offered is in the CHT preferred stock, which is a 12% return with a kind of a equity upside in a, in a warrant, but, um, that's a $25,000 minimum. Um, and what you'll find is that is pretty typical. Um, I think it's wise to take your investment and spread it out between Yeah, maybe if you're not going with a bunch of different sponsors, at least a couple different investments in the sponsors ecosystem. Okay. So that's the three-step process. Open the account. It needs to be self-directed. You're not gonna be able to do this at your brokerage IRA when investing in the private funds here we're talking about or doing real estate in general. Step two, you got to fund it. Use it to transfer rollover existing money you have in an IRA or 401k. And then step three is authorizing the investment in the specific asset you found that you're interested in. And then you're done. Then your account owns it. It starts getting the income off of it. When the asset sells, it gets the income from the asset or the gain. And then you're ready to invest the next deal. I'm sure no investors would be surprised, but most sponsors like us know how to do this and can help you connect, get your directed IRA account open, get through the subscription process and all that kind of stuff. Um, We actually just launched uh, this year a digital subscription process. So we've watched for the first time ever, people just go on our website and buy something without ever talking to us. Not talking to anybody. Yeah. It's so cool. (laughs) It's great. I know. Same thing here. It's like more people open an account and never talk to anyone here than actually talk to someone and open an account. That's amazing. So. Can we, so Bo has a good opportunity zone question that I want to come, come back to, but can we get this slide up? Do you have like a QR code or next steps on oh, sure. how they, people can get in touch with you? So a lot of people have asked that, like, yeah, that, that like, is, what are the steps? Like, 
How do they, when they contact the company, can you walk people through like what they can expect, who they will be talking sure. to and, and, and what that looks like? So we actually distribute our funds through three different channels. Uh, our private client group, which is a direct relationship to us from a high net worth investor. We also have a wholesale group, which is the, your investment advisor or your broker dealer, depending on how you're structured, um, is coming to us, opening an account with us and investing on your behalf. So if you would prefer your investment advisor to connect with us, they can come through our wholesale channel. And then third is we have an institutional channel. We're actually smaller institutions that are relatively underserved, maybe not the Texas teacher's retirement pension plan with 150 yeah. billion, but maybe the Mesa fireman's fund is yeah. looking to make an investment. They can come in through the institutional channel. And so all three of those channels are served by the same team, uh, different individuals on the team. Uh, that's actually my email address. You're actually going to email me. I will get the information. Our team will make sure that we match you based on what your needs are to the right person. And if you're a direct investor, you're going to have an, a, a wealth development representative who's a relationship manager to you. That person has a service, uh, an in-house person that's a service person that's associated with them, and they actually get to know you. They get to know what you're looking for. They try to match make what you what you want towards what we have available, and they try to try to make sure that they uh, maintain the relationship. Our goal is to build trust once, uh, and then hopefully invest with you for years, decades, and and hopefully generations. So that's that's uh, the process. It's pretty simple. First thing we want to know is who are you. How'd you create your wealth? What are you looking to accomplish with your investments? And then we help tell you this caliber story as it relates to what it is that you're looking for. Cool. Yeah, isn't that awesome? Like uh, filtering things through the actual CEO, owners of companies. Matt's always at answering questions. I am too. It's like, and we have great teams behind us, so we're happy to, to help out. Okay, let's hit on, there's a two-part uh, opportunity zone. Um one is if you use a self-directed IRA, traditional, uh, so tax-deferred um, dollars, to invest in an opportunity zone fund and hold it for 10 years, can you, after the 10 years, transfer the money into a Roth tax-free? <laughs> <laughs> I wish that's no. <laughs> Chris is an opportunity zone expert, but I know on the IRA rules, there's no way in hell that would work. No. <laughs> I love the shot, though. Yeah. You know, I don't know who asked It's that always question. fun to hear people shoot yeah. the shot. When, when you do a Roth conversion, does that create a capital gain at that time? No, it's ordinary, it's income, ordinary income, unfortunately. So it goes into your regular tax rate when you convert to Roth. But why don't you speak to, because this person obviously knows the opportunity zone tax strategy, is trying to mix it with the IRA, yeah. but why don't you mention that opportunity zone? This was hot, um, obviously, right when it came out. We had lots of people doing it, um, but it's still around. So why don't you even update an yeah. opportunity zone if you don't mind? Because you guys have some opportunities on People want to know, too, how that applies to using a self-directed IRA. What are the yeah. advantages there? That's sure. Yeah. So so if you think about your you know your right pocket, your left pocket, your IRA funds versus your non-qualified funds, yeah. you know, the opportunity your personal money, I just yeah, call personal it. money, whatever you want to call yeah. that. That's your that's your opportunity zone dollars. So I'll talk about that in a second. But how it relates to an IRA investor is the, the federal government gave us a gift, and this is coming from a guy who's invested over two hundred million dollars into opportunity zone fun, uh, strategies and funds. Um, the that it is the best real estate tax strategy that we have seen, I think, ever. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is it gives us a lot of flexibility on what we invest in and what kinds of deals we do. So from an investor standpoint, a real estate guy standpoint, I can generate a return from you in many different ways. And it's not like all the other tax strategies that are like, you have to do this and you have to buy it in this area and it has to look like this and you have to hire these people and everything is so tightly wound that it's like, 
very rare that you're going to get a deal that actually works. Yeah. So the benefit is the Opportunity Zone program is forcing capital into specific census tracts, so specific little parts of the city that are designated as Opportunity Zones. So if you have- Where the government was trying to encourage investment. Exactly. They're like, they're giving tax incentives for people that are going to go develop, improve this type of property because it's an area they feel like otherwise wouldn't get served. And the incentive is any amount of short or long-term capital gain that you have, you can take the gain component, invest it in an Opportunity Zone fund, and as long as you hold the investment for 10 years, you pay no tax on the growth and the value of that investment ever. So it's kind of like a Roth IRA. Yeah. Um, so if you have that shorter long-term capital gain from any source, selling your business, selling stocks, selling art, selling a piece of real estate, you can take that gain component and put an Opportunity Zone fund. But if you say, well, I don't have that. I only have my IRA funds. Why does that matter to me? Well, if you're working with an Opportunity Zone investor like us, we're doing deals in the zones. The zones are specifically designated areas that are relatively small. If you have a lot of capital targeting relatively small areas of the, of the city, guess what? Those areas we think are going to appreciate and value faster. Mm. So you can invest your self-directed IRA sometimes in the exact same deals yeah, or sometimes in the exact same area with the sponsor who knows both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the opportunity zone is like, it gets, the, the funds get marketed as that because they're targeting those investors that want that tax benefit. But it's also like, this is a a deal that has going to have a return that could be still very valuable. It's just a real estate fund. Yeah. And like, if, if, if it's an awesome deal because of the incentives and the other opportunity zones going into it, I like how you describe that. It's well, an area that's generally going to go up and only helps you more. And all the incentives in, yeah. in, in real estate tax world are generally tax credits. Yeah. So like you get low income housing tax credit or new markets tax credit. All that is doing a deal that makes no money and getting a tax credit to create a return. Mm-hmm. In opportunity zone, the benefit is the investment itself has to appreciate in value over a 10 year period. If it doesn't appreciate in value, there's not that much of a tax benefit to it. Mm-hmm. So you have to do deals that actually make money. Yeah. And so if you're investing in that deal, then the intent is to make money, then it's probably a good deal for you to go in yeah. on a standalone basis. And so I think it's wise for self-directed IRA investors to look at opportunity zones as a, almost like a targeting system on how they can, they can, you know, direct their capital to yeah. good deals. Yeah. I think to answer this question more directly, if someone's like, well, I got 50 grand of personal money and 50 grand in an IRA, what one should I do in the opportunity zone? I, and it's like, well, I'd probably do the 50 grand of your personal money. If that came from a gain, even better. It's like, yeah. well, I had a 50,000 of stock I sold, or I, I sold my small business and I got, you know, I want to, cause you don't have to do the whole thing either on that gain. If you had a gain, whatever business or something, yeah. you can just do a portion of it. You don't have to roll the whole thing. And now you're getting tax deferral over there and possible tax it's elimination. Super flexible. And yeah. In it, like a 1031 exchange, if you sell a real estate building, you got 45 days to identify a project. Yeah. It's relatively tight. In this, you have six months to pick your fund. You can pick 10 different funds. You can set up your own fund if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, you can and, spread and it out. And I'll say this. We've seen a lot of clients that have kind of have a failed 1031 exchange because they sold at a high market and they didn't want to buy in a high market. And they, they couldn't find the deal within their windows and identification yeah. and closing periods to actually execute on it. But they are trying to roll the gain into something else. We can bail them out of that. When that is failing, they can actually go into an OZ fund because they still have time. Yeah. And the difference between their decision-making window and mine is I'm doing opportunistic deals that have a big turnaround mm-hmm. and I have up to a year 
to invest the money. So I don't have to, once it comes, they got six months to put it in my fund and then I've got another year to pick mm-hmm. the deal. So I don't, I'm not forced to invest the same window they are in, in yeah. 31. I was surprised in some of the areas though, that were like identified. I'm like, Scottsdale, they're cracked in there. You know, and it's like, you know, and, and, and even some of the ones in like Phoenix and tell me, I'm like, really, that's kind of a nice area already, but okay. I mean, like, I don't know who lobbied on these things. You know, the governor's got to pick them, right? There's a, definitely a, a boondoggle well, for sure. It was all based on the 2010 census oh, and it was okay. 80% of the area meeting income for the state as of the 2010 census. But dated. then the program came out in 2018. So looking at today, now 13 years after the 2010 census, there's a lot of places that have actually developed quite well. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. I have another one. Yeah. I'm going to give a shout out. And this is from Captain Glenn. He was probably like on every single podcast we've done. Yeah. I love Captain Glenn. He's so, always got a hard question. Yeah, so is we're this getting, one easy though? It is easy. Okay, That's thanks. why we're doing it. We're going to, well, we can wrap it up since we're at the top of the hour. So Captain Glenn wants to know, I have limit. Um, uh, I do have a self-directed IRA, a directed IRA. Thank you, Captain Glenn. But I have um, only s- so much money there. Can you repeat the the minimum investments needed with Caliber? Um, and also, is this are, is everything uh, for accredited, or do you have some some that are for non accredited investors? And can you just tell me those things? So the uh, the minimum investment, the lowest we have is twenty five thousand. Um, I think the highest we have right now is a hundred um, for investors that you know have the ability to kind of be repeat investors, we have discretion to change the minimum. So we've done that before. And especially some of our clients who have an extra 10,000 sitting in their IRA account and they just want to get it into one of our deals. We just, you know, take in the lower minimum. Um, as far as the accredited, non-accredited thing, unfortunately, um, the government is, is quite strict on this. (laughs) The accredited investor rules have been updated. Um, so all of our products are for accredited investors only. Um, some of, some of our competitors invest and and allow up to 35 non-accredited investors in their deals, but they don't verify anything. And it's, it's just a little bit risky in our minds. And so the way that we do it is it's accredited only, um, the new accredited investor rules that came out recently say you, of course you could have it be accredited with a million dollar minimum net worth. You could also be accredited with a two to $300,000 annual income, depending on if you're single or married, but there's a new, new set of rules that also includes if you can prove that you have certain amount of professional experience. So if you're a licensed series seven, if you have certain industry capabilities, so you can, you can look into that with your, uh, just, you know, looking. I was waiting for the regs to come out on that and say attorneys, yeah, CPAs, know. you know, they're getting close. It's um, like, I mean, the law came out on it. And then I think the regs were like, come on, you like totally watered that down and said securities, but people? you know, again, kind of going back to why go public it's the first time in 15 years that accredited investors can, can participate in our mm-hmm. business and no, you're not directly invested in one of the real estate funds, but you own caliber side of all those funds and all the fee income we generate from those funds, which includes the performance fees and the upside of the real estate. So, um, it's the first time we've ever been able to go to a broad audience and say, Hey, invest with us. You can invest in our business on the NASDAQ, or you can invest uh, as a customer. True. Yeah. I got Great one access. More that we're yeah. Sneak in. All right. Because this is on the re- restructure on the, on the private re. Is what's the lockup period for that and your exit strategy? Sure. So um, for the preferred equity that we're we're fundraising for right now, um, I think it's a one to two year investment. Um, the the strategy is a one year, but it I, you know I always double you know, you never know with the markets. Um, the exit strategy for the preferred equity investors is basically 
two different options. One is the company goes public. Uh, assuming it goes public at a minimum target, you're going to be converted to common equity and you can sell your stock off. Um, so you go from being a preferred to a common, you can sell your shares and take your upside and, and go, or you can stay in as a common stockholder and own a dividend paying hotel stock. Um, the second option is let's say, God, you know, we're not going public. The market's not good. We're going to delay it forever. Well, as a preferred equity investor, your equity is expensive. <laughs> um, and the sooner we can refinance you out or pay you off with the cash flow of the company, the better for us. And so the, the other exit would be a redemption is what it's called, or a, a repurchase of your stock, which we would expect to happen within kind of the, the if, if we go past two years, probably in that three to five year window. So if you think of it as a max five-year investment, min one-year investment, target is probably one to two. That's the way to look at it. All right. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, if you missed any portions of this, you got on later, don't worry. This is recorded. Maybe you loved it so much. You want to watch it twice or share it with your friends and family. It's going to be up at directedira.com slash webinar. Uh, we'll get the slides posted up there as well. If you miss those. And then of course, uh, if you want to reach out to Chris is again, you know, work with caliber. If you want not meant to be a recommendation or endorsement anyway, we just want awesome people doing cool things that have some expertise in the area. So Chris, we appreciate you coming on and I don't know if there's any other final words you need to give the people like words of wisdom. I think caliber at the website, anything, anything else you want to share? Final thought is if you're invested in a real estate partnership that you think is in trouble or you need some help with mm. help is free. Advice is free. Um, one of our strategies is to actually be a white knight and help other real estate fund sponsors as we go through this new cycle. Um, maybe we can make a meaningful change in how they're managing their deal. Maybe we can help them get their, their refinance, and maybe that's good for our investors on the other side too. So for those of you who are invested in or maybe in our business, if you need some help, feel free to reach out. This isn't, you know, this is a, a legitimate offer for yeah. any of you. Um, I care about this industry. The the thing I hate the most is to see investors get caught and lose money uh, because it obviously cools everybody on investing in private real estate. And we want everyone to love investing in private yeah. real estate. So anything we can do to help, you can reach out. Um, it's just chris at caliberco.com. Pretty easy to find. Love it. One more plea for some distress. Bring me some distress if it's out there. I will <laughs> yeah. help solve it. And I think that's awesome. That's a great way to do it. I like how you said the white knight. I mean, there's opportunity out there and there's still ways these deals can make money. They just have issues and problems that need to be solved. They may not be able to handle. Yeah, You can go you for have the infrastructure and have done it. And you can go for a maximum return by being really snarky and trying to just drive the deal in the ground, or you can get pay a little bit more and be a white knight and have a much better experience mm -hmm. um, for all sides of the equation. Yeah. Instead of like waiting it for a bankruptcy yeah. or like, you know, trustee sell or something, or, <laughs> you know where it's going. And if yeah. you can avoid that, that's better. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks guys. We'll be back of course, next month with another directed IRA webinar, of course, next week with another directed IRA podcast until then stay calm and self-direct on. The webinar has ended. All right.